I want to start out with a definition of the word self-confidence that we'll put on screen for you here. This is the gist of what the dictionary says is self-confidence. Self-confidence means a feeling of trust in one's abilities, qualities, and judgment. Self-confidence is a feeling of trust in one's abilities, one's qualities, and uh, one's judgment. This is sort of the world's definition of self-confidence. And and basically, this fits with what I and most of us were led to believe is an important characteristic of a healthy person who is productive in the world. A productive member of society has self-confidence in one's you know, abilities and, and, and trusts one's judgment and, and works productively for the world from that place. So I'm here today <laughs> as somebody who, you know, purports to bring the word of God um, to this discussion each week. I'm here to propose that that idea is a terrible trajectory for one's life. A terrible trajectory for one's life that will ultimately end in personal and eternal destruction. So uh, welcome to church. Uh, let's get right into the deep end. Self-confidence is a trajectory, trajectory for one's life if taken as the way we go in life that will end up being a terrible personal trajectory. A terrible personal trajectory. You see, we've been led to believe that this is what it means to be a, a self-actualized, productive member of the world. But I'm here to tell you that self-confidence is a short-term sin management solution. Self-confidence is a short-term sin management solution. That idea by itself today will revolutionize your life if you let it. Self-confidence is a short-term sin management solution. You see, confidence in our judgment and our ability has a a pretty short shelf life in God's economy. And and for, for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, recognizing the limits of your adequacy is the key that unlocks the door of hearing from God and following His Son, Jesus. Until you begin to realize that you are powerless over your sinful patterns, you will continue in slavery to your self-confidence and your personal adequacy. Let me say that again because now we're preaching. Until you begin to realize that you are powerless over your sinful patterns, you will continue in slavery to your self-confidence, a trust in your ability and your adequacy and your judgment until you realize that you're powerless over your sinful patterns, you will continue in slavery to your trust in yourself and your personal adequacy. And when you begin to realize that self-confidence, as we've talked about it earlier, as the world defines it, is a form of sin management, when you begin to realize that self-confidence is a form of sin management, then you have begun to understand, then you have begun to understand the truth that the Apostle John knows and that he teaches us about and that we must claim today, which is this, the root of a Christian's confidence has nothing to do with you and me and our adequacy. (laughs) The root of a Christian's confidence is the work of God in Christ. Flat out, straight up, no qualifications, no need to insert self, human achievement, your adequacy, your personal abilities. The root 
the ground of a Christian's confidence is the work of God in Christ for us. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Romans 3, quoting those psalms, says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one. Like seven times. (laughs) Do we get the picture? Let me say this another way. When I understand the limits of confidence in me, when I begin to understand the limits of confidence in me, I have begun to experience confidence in Christ. That transition has to happen in order to understand what we have in Jesus. Now this may sound, this may seem a little different than what we were taught, even from what many of us were probably taught in church world. Um, This may seem a little bit different, maybe even it feels counterintuitive to hear this, Uh, But I believe that it's scripture (laughs) that we'll talk about today in one place. There are lots of places. but, But I believe that real life, true life, comes when your inability becomes a greater truth about who you are than your ability. Because that's a demonstration of the moment that we go from confidence in self that will always find the limit to confidence in God, who is the only limitless, perfect, holy person. The moment we begin to understand that there is a greater truth about us to say that we are unable than we are able is the moment we go from confidence in self to confidence in God. And that's when our lives, that's when our lives, as we're studying in this, this whole series, we're chronicling on these walls here, that's when our lives become the proof of the presence of God. When we have said, okay, I get it, <laughs> I cannot do this, I am not good enough, smart enough, strong enough, cute enough, whatever enough, <laughs> I give up the enough-isms that I have have put my stock in and I begin to understand that that self-confidence was an illusion. When that transition happens, we can become people who are the proof of the presence of God in us. People whose lives say (laughs) it is Christ's fullness and His completion and His adequacy that makes me alive. It's an important truth for us today that John talks about in a number of different ways. It's kind of a complicated text, um, but there's a lot of us, uh, uh, there's a lot for us to learn here in 1 John 5 about what confidence in God really looks like. So jump in with me at verse 13. We're going to spend a little more time here at the beginning as we often seem to. Um, in verse 13 uh, and 14, but then we'll pick it up a little bit later after that. It starts this way in 1 John 5:13. I write these things to you who believe, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. The Apostle John is obviously writing to already believers, not to non-believers. And here's why. Here's the crux for us. I write these things to you who believe that you may know. Now, this word know here is important for him. We'll talk about that in a second. That you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing this so that you know, 
so that you are certain, so that you have assurance, so that you have confidence. He starts out by saying this at the beginning. He uses the word know here seven times in our passage today from verse 13 to 21. He uses it 37 times in the entire book of 1 John, which is only five pretty short chapters. So it's a pretty important theme he wants to continue to come back to. So he wants his readers to know, to be confident that they have eternal life because their confidence had been shaken. He's writing to people whose confidence had been shaken. And so he's imploring them to live from this understanding of confidence in God that will end up showing up as the proof of his presence. And think about this. Isn't this what we all, this is what we all need? We need to live from a sense of confidence that God will show up as he's promised, as he did on the cross, as he will continue to do in us. Lots of things we can talk about in that regard, but we've got to move on. So here's the backstory before we do. It's important to know the context of 1 John. False teachers had infiltrated the churches to which John was writing. And they were teaching, these false teachers, were teaching that Jesus wasn't fully human in the flesh when he came. Now this is important because if Jesus had not been fully human, like in the flesh when he came, then his sacrifice for us, the exchange of his perfect life for our imperfect life, that exchange, his sacrifice, would not work to save us. Uh, So this is an important issue. There's a lot at stake here. So just imagine that you're in that first century church in 1 John that that the Apostle John had written to. and, And these false teachers had been saying that what you believed about Jesus come in the flesh to save you, uh, that he lived perfectly in the flesh, they said that you were wrong about that. (laughs) And they said, you were inferior, you're a theological moron, you don't know what you're talking about. And they acted like you were, you know, sort of less than and inferior. And, and, And let's also assume you're friends with these people. You spent time with them. Your kids spent time with their kids. Went to the same school, same youth group. You shared life together. Uh, you connected in a life group and prayed for one another. You worshipped alongside them when the body gathered. If you're in that first century church and those kinds of friends that you knew well began to accuse you of believing something as important as whether Jesus actually came in the flesh, your confidence would be shaken. Uh, your sense of, of your salvation might, might feel a little shaky. So you'd probably feel the same way uh, that they did, which is why John says here at the very beginning that he's writing in order to give them assurance and certainty. He wants them to know that they are born of God so that they would live with confidence instead of fear. So that they would live in confidence instead of fear. To live in confidence, meaning we know that in Jesus we have provision for sin. All Christian confidence starts in that place. (laughs) The limit of ourselves to begin to understand that He came in the flesh to make provision for our sin when we could not. That's where all Christian confidence begins. And when we understand that an exchange of His perfect life for our imperfect works to save us, then we can live from what real confidence looks like instead of fear. Because listen, friends, fear is just a sense that you know that there are limits of your self-confidence, but you can't admit it. You can't admit it, so you're still living under the illusion. All fear comes from not. All fear comes from a sense of, I'm not going to be okay unless I. 
I'm not going to be safe unless I. Actually, actually, the root of all Christian confidence is I will always be safe because he. Huge difference. Huge difference. So that's sort of at the root of what's going on here. So let's press on about this Christian confidence because there's a lot uh, for us to learn here uh, together. And, and pay close attention here. Pay close attention here because the rest of the entire passage has some twists and turns um, that are a little bit difficult. Um, but we'll wade through, make sense of it, and uh, continue this Christian confidence thing. Pick it up again, verse 13. Thank you, I can now see. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Keep reading verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, meaning toward God in his presence, that if we ask anything, and now we're talking about prayer, obviously, if we ask anything according to his will, meaning that if we pray in ways that align with the heart of God and his purposes, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us because we pray in ways that align with his will, his purpose, his, uh, his heart. So if we, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, verse 15, then we know, there's that word again, know, this is at least the third, maybe the fourth time now, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, now this, this is confident prayer right here. Praying like you know that your prayers are being answered even as you know you're praying them. Prayers that you know God wants to answer because they fit with his purposes and his will. Our problem is we are constantly praying from I need, I want, for me, my plans, my purposes. And then we wonder, boy, why are you not like what? what?" (laughs) We're praying from from (laughs) self-confidence. And things that God wants to move us past to a dependency upon him instead of ourselves. Don't you see that prayer is about the heart of God to change us into his son Jesus and not what you may want instead of that? So if we're praying in ways that align with the heart of God for him to change us, to make him more like Jesus, then we can, we can pray confidently knowing God wants to make me more like this. And so so think about what confidence in prayer looks like here. John says we have direct access to the God who created the universe, who created us and created us for his purposes. And we can approach him knowing, we can approach him knowing that he's on our side, that he has our best in mind, that he hears us in our moment of need, and that he is with us even... (laughs) even and especially during our feelings of lack of confidence, especially since those are the kinds of moments when he says, ah, now you're listening. Now you're listening. Finally. We can have confidence in God knowing that when we have hit our limits and we go to him asking for help, he wants nothing more but to help us. That is what people who understand the limits of confidence in self do. They ask God for help. <laughs> and they can do so with confidence. Now, now think of how revolutionary that would be for your faith personally. It means that prayer would become a prelude to acting like we trust that God's going to do what he wants to do in us. 
We, we, we don't live that trust kind of life when we pray. We, we're praying, you know, please, please, if you would change these things in my life, then I will trust. Perhaps it's because we're praying in ways that are about us frustrated with that limit of self-confidence instead of admitting (laughs) that God-confidence is what we really need. It means prayer becomes a prelude to acting like we trust in God, which sets the stage for 16 and 17, which are a bit of a a complicated uh, and abrupt change in direction. It feels like, I mean, we've been talking about confidence of God, knowing we have eternal life, uh, prayer. and, And then John moves on to something in verses 16 17, that seems out of place, but when you understand them against the backdrop of everything else in 1 John, it makes sense as an application of confidence in prayer. It makes sense as an application of confidence uh, in prayer. So jump into verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death... I would like to move on quickly, but let's spend a moment here because begins a bit of a complicated argument he's making here. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading uh, to death. Within the context, of course, here, he's saying these are the kinds of things you need to do in a Christian community to avoid the false teachers from happening again. This is what you need to do when you see sin in the camp and when false teachers are trying to lead people away from what God wants into error. Uh, And so here's what some of you need to do to help prevent this from happening again. So he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. John mentions this idea of a sin not leading to death three times in 16 and 17. What he means is this, I'll say it twice, sin that believers commit and for which forgiveness has been secured in Jesus. He's just saying in a bit of a roundabout way, um, which is something John likes to do. Um, he's, He's saying that a sin that does not lead to death is any sin that believers commit for which forgiveness has been secured by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. In other words, it's just normal Christian sin. <laughs> uh, not that it should be normal and acceptable to sin in our own lives or in the lives of others, but he's just saying this is, this is just normal Christian sin stuff, sin that does not lead to death. It's just a roundabout way of saying it. Um, it's just normal Christian sin, not that it should be normal to sin uh, or acceptable to sin, um, but that's just... Um, sort of another way he says it. So, so if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, let's move on. He shall ask, meaning the person should pray for the fellow believer who's going off the rails, and God will give him life. God will grant the future, future resurrection life that he's promised. He shall ask. God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, he says, there is a sin that leads to death, meaning those who were the false teachers Um, referring to the non-believers that rejected Jesus coming in the flesh. He says, we've already seen those that commit the sins that lead to death, who never believed in Jesus in the first place. That's what he says in the book in various places. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Well, duh, don't pray for that, is kind of what he's saying. Uh, And then in verse 17, he goes back to what he said in 16. All wrongdoing is sin, sure, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What on earth is he trying to say here? (laughs) 
because <laughs> he's going in and out. He said the same thing a few times, and then he says something opposite. He's saying that with sin that does not lead to death, normal sin that happens in the lives of believers that is covered by Jesus' sacrifice, when it comes to that kind of sin, we can even be confident that our prayer to restore one another to God is effective to keep us all on the right track. Think about how powerful that is. If the Spirit of God is in your fellow believers and in you and you're praying for them, you're holding them up before God because He wants to bring them to full restoration with Himself and with you. And so you can pray for other believers in ways that show confidently that you believe that God's going to continue to do the work. Now here's part of the problem. We don't live in enough Christian community closely enough for that to be a passion for us. It's almost like we read this and it doesn't even compute or make sense to us. <laughs> Pray for fellow believers who are caught in sin. Like, like I can hardly keep myself together. <laughs> John says we should be praying to keep one another on the right track so that we don't ourselves and others uh, fall prey to the sin that derails us from God's best, just like those who are the false teachers that he's talking about. So John gives us a warning here uh, based on what happened in those churches. He's saying, be careful, pray for one another, connect in a life group. Um, not exactly, but um, it's close enough to what he says. He says, get in, get in Christian community with fellow believers and, and pray for one another for real. I mean, like as if it matters, as if... As if our lives are a battle against sin. I mean, are we praying for one another? Like, like that's what this is? Because that's what this is. We're, we're on the front lines together in a battle against sin in our lives. Which is to say, <laughs> we would recognize the limits of ourselves so that we would pray for the adequacy of Jesus for one another. So if you see a fellow believer starting to go off the rails, pray for them because you understand what that's like. And if the Spirit of God is in them, if they are born of God, then God will restore them. This is a sense of confidence in God continuing to work to shape us into the image of His Son. Now, beginning at verse 18, we have three quick verses here um, that start with this we know statement, this, this confidence uh, statement. And uh, so let's jump in because we've got a lot to cover here. 18 and following. Verse 18 says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God, meaning Christians who are born of the Spirit of God, does not keep on sinning. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, which refers to a regular, habitual practice of sinning, like 1 John 3, 9 says, which we'll put on screen here for you. He said this earlier in 1 John 3, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides, lives in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So when sin is your practice, it owns you, it owns you, and you are uh, bowing down to that sin. It owns you, and a payment and provision for sin in Christ aren't operating as they could or should be for you. Another way to say it. Also, John, when he's saying this, he's not, by the way, saying that those born of God never sin. 
but that they do not live a lifestyle of not trusting in Christ. I'm not sure I said that right. Let me say it this way. (laughs) The true believer in Christ is a habitual repenter. The true believer in Christ is a habitual repenter. This isn't just a come down once in the sawdust trail, get dunked, I'm good kind of thing. This is a continual repentant heart that understands the limits of one's confidence and where God begins and is adequate. That is as the ground of our confidence. A true believer in Christ is a habitual repenter, not just a one-time repenter. Um, but an ongoing turning from sin kind of thing. So verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, meaning Jesus, he does sort of a a twist on that, protects him, meaning the believer, and the evil one does not touch him. All people, according to John, obey God or the devil. Those are the two categories. So the lesson for us here in verse 18 is this. We are confident because of the sign of ongoing repentance in us, turning from sin and toward God, we are confident because of the ongoing repentance in us. If, you, if you're confronted with sin and you want to repent, that should, should be a good sign for you. <laughs> That's a position of confidence, which is a theme he touches on here in verse 19. We know that we are from God. Our position is with him for eternity. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 20, and we know that the son of God has come and given us understanding, meaning understanding about our sin, our desperate need for a savior. We know that the son of God has come and given us that kind of understanding so that we may know him who is three times true, meaning worthy of trust, and good and right and perfect in every way. And we are in him who is true the second time, his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, third time, and eternal life. That kind of trust, that kind of trust in what God has done in Jesus for us and the ongoing power of the Spirit to renew us, that is where confidence that is rooted in Christ's work for us starts. That's what Christian confidence is all about. And then he says in verse 21, which sounds a little weird, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Like, what's that have to do with anything you've been saying? (laughs) Um, It sounds a little weird and out of context, but he he throws this in as a way to encapsulate everything he's been saying in some ways. Because he hasn't been talking about idols explicitly. um, And and even in the context of this this confidence theme that we're touching on today, he doesn't talk about idols. Uh, But but here's why it fits. He's simply saying with verse 21, keep yourself from idols. Stop trusting anyone or anything other than Jesus. Stop trusting anything or anyone other than Jesus. That includes you. (laughs) That includes me. That includes the relationships around you. That includes whatever it is to whom or to which you give yourself. That will end up forming you like we talked about last week. Anything can be an idol in which we place trust. So John says, stop trusting in anyone or anything other than Jesus. Because, and here's why, because, like we said at the beginning, self-confidence is a short-term sin management solution. My question is, how is your self-confidence working for you? How's your trust in your ability working for you? Is that working for you to to bring you into right relationship with God? (laughs) 
or have you, I pray, reach the end of your abilities in judgment? Or are you still under the illusion of self-control masquerading as self-confidence? It's sort of like this, and I'll close with this little illustration, cute little illustration. There was a well-known brain surgeon named uh, Dr. Bronson Ray. And uh, one day when Dr. Ray was on a stroll through his neighborhood, he saw a boy on a scooter who smashed headfirst into a tree. I mean, this poor kid knocked his noggin uh, big time. He was seriously injured, and Dr. Ray, who was a brain surgeon, uh, quickly could tell this poor kid was in trouble. And so he told a bystander to call an ambulance, and uh, pretty soon, a few minutes after that, a crowd had kind of gathered, and as this doctor, this brain surgeon, was administering first aid on this young boy, um, another young boy, not much older than the one on the ground, comes comes through, uh, sort of fights through the crowd, um, and and says to Dr. Ray, I'd better take over now, sir. Uh, I'm a Boy Scout. And I know first aid. (laughs) Which sounds ridiculous, right? But listen, that's a lot how we function in life, to be honest. Think about it. When When we come upon the broken pieces of our lives, we look down at the injured mess of our sin. It's it's like we push away God's provision for us, who has been sent to help us because he created us and he loves us, and we say, I'd better take over now, sir. Thank you. Really? You're that confident in yourself. I mean, think about that. That that's kind of where we function. How delusional must you be? How self-centered must you be to act like that in the face of a God who made you and loves you and sent his son Jesus in the flesh to live a perfect and a sinless life for you and then exchange it on the cross for our mess? I mean, let's be real, friends. When it comes to taking care of of our problem of sin, we are all Boy Scouts trained in first aid. The gospel is this. (laughs) The good news is this. Give it up and let the expert take care of your sickness. Which is to say, be confident in what God has done for you in Jesus. And stop the self-confident charade that functions like idolatry. Let's pray.